In this episode of Grounded Hope, we'll talk with leading researchers about the future of the hemp industry and what role this ancient crop could play in Ohio's agricultural future. I'm Renee Wild. From the highways to the hedgerows, we bring you Grounded Hope. Hemp seeds were first introduced to North America by European colonists and were grown to produce everything from rope and canvas to paper paints and varnishes. This versatile crop was so important to the foundation of early settlements that in 1619, it was actually illegal not to grow hemp in some of the newly formed states, like Massachusetts, Connecticut, and parts of Virginia. Although hemp was never a common crop in Ohio, during the 1800s, it was produced extensively around Marietta, where there was a flourishing shipbuilding industry, and to a lesser extent, along the bottoms of the Scioto Miami rivers. But hemp is a very labor-intensive crop to grow and process. And as competition from cotton and synthetic fibers, like nylon, became available, by 1918, hemp production in Ohio had ceased. Now, 100 years later, researchers in the state are looking for ways to bring hemp crops back into Ohio's agricultural future. And we are starting from the ground up and trying to fit a crop from the 1900s, early 1900s, into a modern production system. There's a learning curve. That's Lee Beers. I'm the Ag and Natural Resources Extension Educator for Trumbull County. So nobody's really growing hemp for fiber for rope anymore, right? We don't have big sailing ships that need a lot of rope, but it's the fiber that can be used in a variety of other things. So using the fiber in concrete. Lee is part of a group that includes Penn State University, OSU Extension, and local growers who are partnering with a nonprofit organization in Newcastle, Pennsylvania called DON, Disabilities Opportunities Network. The organization just finished construction on the very first hemp house in the state of Pennsylvania. It's made out of hempcrete, a mixture of lime, industrial hemp, and water, which has been used as an alternative building material in Europe and Australia since the 1960s. There's actually a company that will take the whole plant and press it into flooring, like you might have seen pressed bamboo flooring, but instead of bamboo, it's hemp. In Europe, they use the oil and seed for a lot of things. Just think how we use soybean oil for everything in a car. They use hemp. So it's, again, an industry that, if it allowed to continue when it was made illegal, be a whole different state of things right now. Instead of a reliance on soybean and a couple other things that work very well, there would be another alternative for hemp. In front of us are hemp fiber samples from some of the research plots Lee grew last year. So you can see we have the center portion here, which is that called the herd, and then the fibers that are on the outside are what you're after. So. When you harvest this, you actually mow it, and it has to sit in the field for about four to six weeks, and it has to go through a controlled rotting process. It's called redding, R-E-T-T-I-N-G, until it reaches a certain color, and that natural process will allow the fibers to be separated from the rest of the plant much easier. Growing industrial hemp for fiber could be a good fit for farmers because it can be done with some of the same conventional machinery that they use to make hay. The part of the problem is that if you don't get this to grow just right, your weeds are going to be astronomical. And you can see here, these are all weeds that came in last year's crop. That's going to be uh, barnyard grass and some hemp. And we actually had to mow off one of our research plots this year because the weeds came in so bad. And there's no labeled herbicides that you can actually go in and spray over top of the hemp to control the weeds. And hand weeding and any mechanical weeding is not practical. 
On the drive out to look at one of the hemp research plots located on a nearby farm, we pass a soybean field surrounded by a brand new 15-foot tall black chain link fence. That fence is a remnant from one farmer's attempt last year to get in on the CBD market frenzy when hemp finally became legalized to grow in Ohio. When it became legal at the federal level, our door was being knocked down daily with people saying, hey, I want to grow hemp. They saw the crazy prices that people were getting for CBD before it was made legal. But for most of the 197 growers who applied for a license to cultivate hemp in 2020, they quickly found out that not only was hemp a very labor-intensive crop to grow, but the market for domestic CBD had already crashed as more states passed legislation to legalize hemp crops. In 2016, less than 10,000 acres of hemp were licensed to grow in the U.S. But when federal legislation was passed in 2018, that number jumped to 78,000 acres. And by 2019, over half a million acres were licensed to grow hemp domestically. Farmers in states that were among the first to legalize hemp have been making around $40 a pound. But with the influx of new growers from other states, prices had plunged below the break-even point by the time hemp became legal for Ohio growers. We were producing an astronomical amount of CBD that we couldn't even consume as a nation. And that caused a flood of product, a lack of processors, and a lot of very disappointed farmers trying to sell their product at pennies on the dollar. I think long-term sustainability, long-term establishment of hemp as a, a normal crop is going to be in either the grain or the fiber. That's my personal opinion. Yes. Oh, the smell hits the you smell, right away. Yeah. Is it because it's humid today? Yeah, it's humid and then this is still flowering a little bit. So bee lab is monoecious, means that there's male and female on one plant. Some of these other varieties, they have male plants and female plants. And that has another set of challenges because they may flower at different times. But from the road, if you didn't know what you're looking at. So what is the difference between hemp and marijuana? So these are legal definitions established by the federal government when we talk about what they call marijuana and what they call hemp. That's Dr. Brandi Phipps. She's the research assistant professor of food, nutrition, and health at Central State University. And so in the law, hemp is cannabis that has less than 0.3% tetrahydrocannabinol, which is THC. What's typically referred to as marijuana is anything that when it's tested is higher than that 0.3% THC. Sometimes you'll see hemp further referred to as industrial hemp to suggest that it's used for industrial purposes versus recreational or medicinal purposes. The majority of hemp being grown in the U.S. right now is for the CBD industry. So they're growing hemp for flowers to extract the CBD oil from which is then used in a wide variety of health and alternative medicine-related products. When we talk about THC and CBD, and again, THC is tetrahydrocannabinol, it's just a chemical compound, and CBD is referring to cannabidiol. Both of them are part of a huge family of chemical compounds known as cannabinoids. So they're all fairly similar in structure, but as we all know, tiny changes in chemical structure can cause them to bind to different receptors or act differently in the human body than their family counterparts. And so the main difference between THC and the majority of the other cannabinoids is that THC provides an intoxicating effect. 
versus the other cannabinoids that for the most part are what we call non-intoxicating. Now, sometimes there's some confusion because people confuse intoxicating with psychoactive, and that's not the same thing. Many of the cannabinoids are psychoactive, meaning that they do bind to receptors that are in different parts of the nervous system. If they didn't, then people wouldn't be trying to use them for anxiety, for insomnia, for PTSD, right, for other things related to the nervous system. And so we know that they can be psychoactive, but they're not what we refer to as intoxicating, giving that high that people think of and refer to when they think of THC. With all the attention right now on hemp being grown for cannabinoids, Dr. Phipps says that one of the most nutritious parts of the hemp plant is often overlooked. Grain gets sort of left in the background when really hemp grain is this amazing, nutrient-dense plant product. And we have very little of it grown in the United States right now. The majority of hemp grain on the market is coming out of Canada and is coming out of Europe. And so I always say that I would like people to consider if they want to grow hemp, not just thinking about fiber, which can be very expensive to get into because of the equipment required, or metabolite hemp, right, which the market's a little bit saturated right now with that, but thinking about grain as a possible field to look into. And so when I say that it's this amazing plant product, when we talk about any kind of food product, if you can have a great balance of carbohydrates and fats and proteins, we say like that's, that's a great thing to have. You don't want to lean too heavily in your meals on any one side. Well, it just so happens that hemp grain has a wonderful balance of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. And then if we move beyond that, we talk about things like complete proteins and incomplete proteins. A complete protein, and most people think of meat products, dairy, eggs, right, has all of the essential amino acids. An incomplete protein, so this is gonna be most grains, beans, etc., are incomplete, meaning they're missing one or more of those essential amino acids. Most plant proteins are incomplete. That's why we do complementary eating. You have beans and rice or beans and tortillas. So almost every culture in the world has their version of combining foods in order to get a complete protein in their meal, which I think is really cool if we look through the history of, of cultural foods. Um, but very few plant products have complete protein on their own. Soy is one of the ones that does, but most people aren't eating soy in its most natural form. They're eating highly processed forms of soy. And so there start to be, you know, pros and cons of using that as your primary protein source, right? Hemp happens to have all of the essential amino acids. And that's when it can be eaten just dehulled and in its grain form. You can also, by very simple processing, right, that doesn't remove a lot of nutrients, it can be pressed into oil and into hemp seed cake, which can be used for protein powders or as or ground fi more finely as a flour. So again, minimal processing for these really highly nutrient-dense products. And then finally, my very favorite, um, we talk about omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. And so you hear that a lot in the news. That's why people are encouraged to eat fish oil to get those omega-3 heart-healthy fats. It's not that omega-6s are bad and omega-3s are good. It's that 
you want the right ratio of them in your foods or in your diet. And ideally that's gonna be a one-to-one omega-6 to omega-3 up to a three-to-one omega-6 to omega-3. The typical American diet is 20 to one or higher omega-6 to omega-3. And a lot of that is because of the corn oil and the different food products that are available that are much higher in omega-6s. And so whenever we can find a product, right, that has this really nice balance of three to one, um, you know, we'll even settle for six to one if we need to, but just trying to get lower than that 20 to one, you're gonna have more of those heart healthy anti-inflammatory amino acids to balance the omega-6s, which are a little more, I wouldn't say they're pro-inflammatory, but they're less anti-inflammatory than the omega-3s. We know that fish oil is not a sustainable resource, right? Um, at least not the way that fish oil is done right now. And so anytime that we can find, in my opinion, anytime that we can find nutrient-dense foods that are gonna provide the things that we need in a way that's environmentally sustainable, and economically viable, I'm all for it. And so hemp grain has uh, approximately a three to one omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid. So it's that perfect balance that we talk about. Hemp is also being researched for its regenerative use as a phytoremediator, a term that refers to using green plants to vacuum contaminants out of soils and waterways through its root system. But the hemp plant's ability to absorb the messes left behind by poor farming practices, industrial contaminants, and waste dumping is also the reason why it's really important to make sure that any hemp products that are made for human or animal consumption are grown under strict organic guidelines. I am Dr. Craig Schlottenhofer. I work at Central State University. I'm a research assistant professor of natural products, and my specialty is with hemp. In this case, a lot of the work I'm doing is more with understanding how different regulatory parameters impact the crop because there's a lot of regulatory components to maintain a compliant crop and understanding how those come into play so we could reduce the risk for growers producing the crop because if you produce a non-compliant crop then there's going to be financial losses because of needs for crop destruction and things like that. Okay, here's the tricky part for Ohio hemp growers. Whether they are growing for CBD, fiber, or grain, if the THC content goes above 0.03% at any point in the growing process, it's considered hot hemp, and the entire crop will be destroyed by the state. That can be devastating for growers who have invested tens of thousands of dollars up front for the licensing fees, seeds, equipment, and labor cost, only to have their crops burned before they can get to market. That's the big uh, multi-million dollar question really is how you control that THC level. The plant's controlling it through genetics uh, primarily and so selection for proper genetics could help but if you talk to growers anecdotally it seems that there is some stress factors that probably impact the THC level as well and cause it to go up and so a lot of them try to mitigate as much stress on the crop as possible to keep it lower but ultimately the only way to control for it is not even really control, it's just you monitor by having samples taken and sent off to an analytical lab for testing periodically so you could keep track of what that level is. A lot of growers don't realize 
how much testing needs to be done, how frequently usually it needs to be done. I would recommend at least weekly once the plants are flowering until you start seeing a level that you're comfortable with getting the Department of Ag to come out and collect their official samples, which sometimes takes time. I mean, it's they're expensive tests to run, but they're essential for maintaining the compliance of the crop. It's most important if you're growing crops for the metabolites, particularly like CBD, which is the cannabidiol. Other crops have been genetically selected over time for less THC levels, especially with the genetics from other countries. And so the grain crops and the fiber crops typically have less concern. Fiber also because of you're usually harvesting before those female flowers really even get going. It's when the male plants are flowering. So there you're not going to have a lot of cannabinoids anyways. When you have grain, you're allowing that flower to fully mature and get grain. So you could have cannabinoids there, but those genetics have been much more heavily selected for compliance. And in some cases, for an even lower level of THC, in other countries than we have in the U.S. Yeah, um, so here's some, this is some dried material. It's actually from last year that I haven't got processed because we've been developing all the testing protocols for looking at the whole cannabinoid profile and everything. Uh, I've got some material out in the field that we're looking at for variety trials, just seeing how different varieties perform for our region. This is important because, again, most of that, particularly grain and fiber varieties, which I'm looking at, are coming from other countries, and so they're not the best suited for the U.S. So some of the work I'm doing with that is identifying what varieties have positive traits and then being able to take other material that I have and actually breed for improved genetics that are better adapted for our region. What do you see as the future for this plant? You know, there's a lot of different opinions on what people see for for him. And it runs all the way from the gamut of people think it could be used for anything and everything, all the way to the people that think it's just a route into the recreational cannabis and don't see any actual utility for it. I see people on both sides of those opinions and everybody in between. Realistically, I see it somewhere in the middle is, you know, it has a lot of potentially beneficial applications. But everything it's going to be good for is going to have to compete with other crops that may have similar properties that are beneficial. Give an we, example. A lot of people are interested in trying to get hemp into feeds, animal feeds, because of the omega content and that could be healthy for animals. It's going to have to compete with corn and soybeans that are other components of feed, particularly soybeans, which even though they have different ratios of these nutritional components, they can be obtained from that crop. And obviously we in the U.S. mass-produced soybeans on a such larger scale that that's a fairly low-cost feed ingredient. And so we're going to have to find ways that, okay, is hemp truly better than this product? And then maybe it'll get wide-scale adopted, or is there a niche in there that we could exploit that makes it useful? And the same with fiber. There are other natural fibers. We import a lot of those, and a lot of them are coming from places that can produce them really cheaply versus a having to do a domestic production of hemp fiber. So to incorporate those realistically into products, we're going to have to find those products that this is ideally suited for that can capture that value that it actually brings of that strength versus some of these other natural fibers that are available. But it's a fascinating area to work in because all of this is going on from a plant perspective. It's a very old plant. People have dealt with it for millennia 
but the actual, even the underlying biology and what's going on in the plant, we're still figuring all that out. And there's decades of research ahead of us to begin to get a good grasp on that, at least to the point where we're at the same kind of knowledge as corn and soybeans and these other major crops that we have. And so there's always something new and exciting to look at, um, which makes it really fun. Visit our website at groundedhope.org and click on the Educational Resources tab to see ways that hemp is being used for regenerative purposes. This podcast is brought to you by the people at Agraria, Ohio's first center for regenerative practices and funded in part by a grant from the Ohio Humanities. Sign up for Agraria's Pathway to Regeneration Honoring Water Conference being held on November 5th and 6th at www.communitysolution.org and hear stories directly from indigenous peoples, artists, activists, and researchers working to protect water. Our podcast webmaster is Rachel Isaacson. The scholars are Beth Bridgman, who teaches a series of reskilling and resilience courses at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and Rick Livingston, the assistant director of the Humanities Institute at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I'm Renee Wilde, and you've been listening to Grounded Hope. Not, not.